So glad you got the memo, Dimitri, and um, we both uh, put the same color shirts on. That's <laughs> <laughs> teamwork. Teamwork. Teamwork makes the dream work. Oh, and Rich as well. We're all purple. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> no, it looks black. Man, what happened? What is up with my lighting? My lighting is terrible. Very wobbly. Looks like you're falling down a, a well. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. Look at this. How ridiculous. You have to, uh, you have to uh, at the end of the uh, this year's series, maybe a blooper reel or something, you know? <laughs> <laughs> that'd be good and what end there's no end <laughs> no, just the year just the year yeah okay right at the end of the season exactly season one season one that's right yeah. i haven't been uh numbering seasons Welcome to this episode of the Academy Management Review Origin Series. Uh, my name is Rich Makadok. I am an associate editor at AMR, also a um, uh, professor of management at Purdue University's Cranet School of Management, and I'm your host for the series. Uh, on today's episode, I'll be interviewing uh, Dmitry Sharapov and uh, Sam McCauley, who together are co-authors of a forthcoming AMR paper uh, called Design as an Isolating Mechanism for Capturing Value from, from Innovation, colon, from Cloaks and Traps to Sabotage. Well, gentlemen, welcome to the AMR Origin Series. Thanks, Rich. Thanks, Rich. Great to be here. Excellent. So um, let me ask you to give a brief uh, one minute or so elevator pitch explanation of the manuscript. What's it about? Okay, so inventors pour epoxy resin onto integrated circuits and they insert errors into blueprints, all because these design choices help them tackle one of the most fundamental challenges associated with innovation. So how on earth do you stop rivals imitating you and competing away your profits? So what we try to do in our paper is provide a topology to describe and a theory to explain how the way inventors articulate and codify knowledge into things like blueprints and software code and maps and prototypes can have just as important an influence on a rival's ability uh, to innovate, uh, imitate your innovations as think normal things that we'd think about in the management literature, like patents and complementary assets and even social norms. Yeah, very interesting, very interesting. Uh, let me ask you to maybe talk us through some, some more of the details on this because obviously there's a lot more to it than just that simple one minute elevator pitch. Good. So this is table one from the paper. Maybe uh, if you could just talk us through, well, actually, this is only the first half of table one from the paper, yep. uh, the upper half of table one, and then we can get to the lower half in a moment. But maybe talk us through uh, this table and uh, what it means and, and, and what, what the ideas it's trying to convey. What are the ideas it's trying to convey? Sure thing, Rich. Um, would it actually be possible to have a quick look at uh, figure 
two, I think, before we get into the table, because I think that that's a okay. will make it clearer what the table is all about. OK, there, there we go. Figure two. So the, the first um, part of the paper uh, is essentially us trying to think through how a um, manifestation. Uh, so what Sam was talking about, how um, inventors choose to articulate uh, knowledge regarding their innovation into prototypes, blueprints, and so on, um, what the design choices pertaining to that manifestation might be. And we boil it down to the degree of the completeness of this manifestation compared to uh, the totality of the focal knowledge related to the innovation and whether or not uh, it contains mo modifications. Okay. And so to do this, we, we think of these manifestations uh, and of innovation generally in a very Schumpeterian manner as a recombination process where different components of knowledge are recombined. Um, and the knowledge relating to a focal innovation then consists of several of these knowledge components. Um, so you have the full um, manifestation with the components A, B, C, D, and E. And what you could do is you could remove some of these knowledge components uh, from a manifestation you design and create a partial one. Mm -hmm. You can augment it by adding a couple of other components. Primarily, we argue for the, the purposes of reducing immutability. Mm -hmm. Or you could change some of the components. So for instance, um, you could have a full manifestation, but one where components B and C are swapped for components X uh, and W. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, so given that that's how we think about these design choices, um, well, how does it actually connect to possible outcomes in terms of imitation? Um, so for this- Back up to the table now at this point? Yeah, I think, I think that okay. would be good. If you can now so go to, to the table. Let me do a little pause here and I'll back sure. up to the, the table. Great. I changed the width of the zoom to fit width. There we go. Right. So to uh, make that connection beyond just a, a typology of different kinds of uh, design choices relating to uh, manifestations of knowledge, um, to go beyond that and to say, okay, so how can this help protect uh, an innovation from being imitated? Uh, we draw on the awareness, motivation, and capability framework from competitive dynamics. Okay. And there's been a lot of uh, work done uh, in this stream of literature. Um, for our purposes, what we focus on is the idea that uh, to successfully respond to a reaction, uh, in this case, to successfully imitate and innovation, the counterparty needs to be aware uh, of that innovation and of its content. Mm -hmm. It needs to be uh, motivated to actually pursue an imitation attempt. So it has to believe that that innovation is sufficiently valuable to make that worthwhile. And it needs to possess the capability uh, to, to do so uh, and to be successful uh, in that imitation attempt. Okay. Uh, and what we try to do is to theorize how these different design choices affect these three drivers of imitability. Very clever. Good. 
So we start off uh, with something that is probably familiar to, to most people. Um, so a complete unmodified manifestation. So here in the middle of the table. Um, so this is essentially your classic patenting idea where you present uh, the, the totality of the, of the innovation. Um, and if you just think about that through a awareness motivation capability approach, what's, what that does is it increases a counterparty's awareness of the innovation and its content. It reduces uncertainty about value of that innovation because they can evaluate uh, given that they have pretty much all, all of the information about it. Uh, and it also reduces the capability required to imitate because you're essentially handing them pretty much all they need to do it. Right, and you're just relying on the court then to protect you. Exactly, and so we're saying that this only will help you to reduce imitability if it's combined together with legal, economic, or social isolating mechanisms, in which case what you're doing by investing in those mechanisms is signaling that you're committed uh, to protecting this innovation mm -hmm. from being imitated, uh, and that reduces the counterparty's motivation to proceed despite them having the awareness of it uh, and you know, the capability required still being reduced. Exactly, okay. Sam, do you want to take on one of the other? Yeah, sure. <clears throat> um, yeah, so we'll move over to the left-hand side, so with careful coordinating. And I think this will be familiar to most people in, say, the technology innovation management uh, community more broadly, because uh, a lot of the examples of this come from things like, you know, open, in the open innovation area, the selective revealing literature. So here what you do is um, part of the target manifestations revealed to facilitate collaboration. Uh, so what it does there is, in terms of AMC is the awareness and motivation are reduced because you're, redu you're only revealing part of it and the capability required increases once again because you're only revealing part of it. Mm -hmm. um, we've got really interesting examples of this coming out of studies looking at distributed procurement, uh, manufacturing, selective revealing. Uh, there's some nice examples, uh, an, a an AMR paper actually uh, by Joe uh, looking at how firms uh, do take this approach to uh, organizing R&D in countries with weak appropriability regimes. So they'll move part of the R&D projects over there, but they'll keep the core back, say, in the US or in Europe. Uh, and that's the way they try to uh, yeah, reduce the uh, risks of uh, misappropriation. Nice. Okay. So I think um, one thing to, to note is that, of course, these things are not costless. Uh, mm. And so we, we also consider what the costs are of trying to use these design mechanisms. So in the case that Sam was just talking about, uh, a clear cost would be the investment in modularizing the knowledge uh, right. sufficiently to actually make that partial manifestation still useful uh, in the innovation process or in the production process uh, and so on. Um, okay, I can talk about the, uh, the right-hand uh, box in that next. Uh, so this is... Um, a manifestation which has additional components um, added to it primarily for purposes uh, of protection. Okay, um, and we think that this can work through a couple of mechanisms. So the awareness, motivation, capability implications of this uh, by themselves are, are a little bit um, equivocal. So on the one hand, um, you're still essentially providing a manifestation that contains all of the, the knowledge that the counterparty would want, right? Uh, which has positive effects on their awareness and their motivation. 
But on the other hand, by adding these extraneous components, you're also increasing the complexity of the manifestation, which from the work of, of Jan Rifkin and others actually serves to reduce the ability of somebody to exactly understand what is going on as easily. So reduces the awareness and motivation on the other hand. So what we're saying the effects would be in this case would depend on a couple of things. Firstly, um, whether on this focal knowledge relates to a process or a product, or whether it's designed for commercialization or is actually meant as a, say, a blueprint only for internal use. And we're saying that if it relates to a process or if it's not designed for commercialization, uh, then the complexity effect essentially dominates. The uh, counterparty in that case is unlikely to have sufficient time to actually be able to uh, pick it up, pick the manifestation apart uh, and get the, the full manifestation out of it. The other contingency here is, again, if you're using this alongside legal, economic and social isolating mechanisms, there are cases in which these extraneous components can be serve, uh, can serve uh, as tags to essentially allow you to prove um, that your knowledge has been expropriated. Right. Uh, and so these are um, cases uh, like watermarks, uh, like the case of uh, trap streets where map makers insert fictitious um, streets or even towns right. just to be able to prove that somebody stole their map essentially. Um, whereas the, um, the former uh, possibility, uh, the one of that we call cloaking, um, has examples such as the development mules that car manufacturers use uh, to road test cars that are in the process of being developed without giving away uh, the bodywork uh, to their rivals. Yeah, so that's if, you know, you notice you're driving down the streets in, you know, any big car city and you'll see a car coming past, you'll pull up at the lights and it's usually got some variety of camouflage on it. It's the most obvious right. example. Uh, you know, I still remember when Dimitri and I were going, uh, visiting some colleagues in, uh, I think it was uh, Bologna or somewhere. And, you know, there's all the amazing, you know, Ferraris and Lamborghinis and stuff around there. And, you know, all of a sudden the lights, one pulls up and it's all in camouflage. And you're like, wow, what's going on here? Right. So, yeah, they're, they're, they're the very obvious examples, but they also do stuff like, you know, putting a different body on a different chassis. So it's right. more difficult for their rivals to observe what's going on. Right. This is where the solutions get almost cryptographic in nature. Right. Okay. Shall I move on to the bottom half of the table? Yeah, great. Sure. Okay. So, okay, here's the bottom half. Uh, okay, so I'll start on the left. Um, so a partial. Um, so what we've got here is you're revealing part of the manifestation, but you're also starting to change the the uh, components. So modify the components. Right. So okay. fainting is uh, is what we call this. So a partial manifestation is modified to disrupt or misdirect a rival's sense-making and trigger a suboptimal search path. So what this does is with the AMC, um, awareness and motivation are reduced and the capability required is increased. Um, so because of that misdirection uh, and the difficulty sense-making. So a classic example here would be, uh, you know, so we talked about, uh, about patents a lot in this literature. Um, there's actually uh, an interesting, small but interesting literature on decoy patents. Mm. Uh, here where people actually reveal uh, patents in the hope, not in terms of the, with the motivation not to uh, protect a specific innovation, but to mislead their rivals off onto uh, obscure paths. 
There's a great uh, example of this as well with uh, fake surveys uh, being undertaken to distract Standard Oil from building the Tidewater pipeline. So this uh, small uh, company was uh, concerned about Standard Oil uh, buying out uh, the land that would prevent them th these guys getting around Standard Oil's monopoly and building a pipeline mm -hmm. um, out to get their oil out. And so what they did was to confuse Standard Oil about the path. They went off and did fake surveys. Uh, in the wrong direction. So Standard Oil thought went off and bought all this land in this direction while these guys were secretly building, buying up land in the other direction. <laughs> okay. Well, should, I, should I highlight a different one next? Yep. Sure, let's uh, let's go for the, the one in the middle. Um, so this is one where you have a complete manifestation, but one that has modified uh, components. And we call this uh, obfuscating. Um, and in terms of the AMC implications, um, it's a situation where the awareness and motivation effects uh, are equivocal, because on the one hand, the manifestation is complete, uh, so that already provides information. But on the other hand, there are components that are not what they should be, right? So that, that then makes it more complex to, pro uh, to process and to, to work out what should be there and what shouldn't be there. So the main effect here is that the capability uh, required of the counterparty is increased. Mm -hmm. um, and so there, there's an interesting range of quite seemingly different examples that, that fall into this, uh, but that all seem to connect it to this logic. So on the one hand, you've got um, things like common ciphers where characters are substituted for other characters in right. cryptography, right, to, to hide uh, meaning of messages from those who shouldn't be listening to them, essentially. Um, and on the other hand, you have things like um, the uh, alleged leaking of faulty pipeline control software uh, to the USSR by the CIA, where they essentially put a functioning program uh, that had some code tweaked so that it would essentially malfunction uh, within a couple of years, uh, which allegedly led to a big pipeline uh, explosion. So in both of these cases, we argue that the fundamental mechanism is, is the same. Okay, so yeah, here we are getting even more cryptographic in nature. Yeah, and there's a, a, a neat example with, say, with software compilers. So the, in their seminal paper, Josh Gans and Scott Stern, uh, Research Policy 2003, I think, from memory, yeah. um, you know, they, they, they have this really nice discussion where they talk about you know, this, this shift from um, uh, towards object-oriented coding and how that made it more difficult to reverse engineer mm. uh, software. Uh, so yeah, this is uh, so one of the points we make in the paper is, and hopefully one of the contributions of this paper is that we're actually saying, hey, there's some actually interesting uh, observations in the literature at the moment, some rather seminal papers um, and chapters. Uh, so one of Sid Winters, where people talk about this sort of stuff, but until you've got a framework to sort of a topology to actually figure out how these things link together, like these examples, it's right. easy to see the sort of idiosyncratic curiosities rather than, you know, a family of isolating mechanisms. Exactly. Yeah. That's one of the reasons why I like this paper so much is that it, uh, it gives that kind of overarching framework for understanding this phenomenon. Okay. So the last piece is this one here. Okay, so we uh, this is where you've actually got you augment the manifestation and you change or modify uh, components of it. So the point here is you're doing this uh, in such a way as to prevent unsanctioned replication usage. Um, as a result, it's going to make uh, the it more difficult to uh, observe uh, the manifestation, and you'll also reduce counterparty motivation because you're actually manipulating in such a way as to reduce 
uh, will make it difficult to replicate and use. And the capability is going to be required, is going to increase because you're going to need to find a way. If you want to try and understand the uh, full manifestation, you need to try and unpick these changes uh, and remove the augmentations. And a great example of this is, you know, the massive boom in digital rights management. You know, in the from the 90s until now, this has been, it's something that we almost just, you know, all of us would use it every day, DRM. Yeah, we've got products in DRM, even journals, right? Um, and we, I think it's, it's very easy just to go, think of it as part of software rather than something that's actually inhibiting imitation by rivals. A uh, trial software is another example where you might trial, you download the software, you give it a go, uh, and then it deletes itself or locks itself or explodes your computer. Um, so these, these are other sorts of examples where you're adding additional aug augmentations to what would otherwise just be the normal functioning bit of software in such a way that you're trying to um, make it difficult to replicate and use in an unsanctioned way. Great. Well, thank you for taking us through that more detailed explanation. Now, I did happen to stumble across a, a news article recently that I think illustrates one of your points. Um, and I wanted to show this to you. So the, recently, we, we Apple celebrated the 20th anniversary. You can't believe it's been 20 years of the iPod, um, making me feel really old. Uh, but it is true. The iPod was introduced in 2001. And so uh, it has been 20 years since Apple introduced the iPod and uh, someone released uh, photographs of the original, um, the, the prototype uh, of the original iPod that, that Apple used in its lab and the way it was disguised to look nothing like an iPod. Um, so let me show you this. Okay, so this was a, an article in The Verge and as you can see here, the headline is the original iPod prototype was an Apple designed uh, to prevent leaks. And you can see it right here. Look at how gigantic this thing is, first of all. Well, it's, it's the size of a book or perhaps even larger than a laptop computer. Wow. Uh, and you can see, and let me show you maybe some more details. Um, this is what it looked like. And I mean, you just, I mean, take a look at the, so here's the screen up at the top. And then look at the arrangement of the buttons, the up, down, <laughs> left and right buttons have absolutely no relationship to up, down, left or right. And then there's the wheel over here, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, here's the inside of it. You can see the inside is mostly empty space. Yeah. There's the little control module over here, you know, some lead wires going to those buttons and so on. And um, yeah, here's that picture of it next to a computer showing the size. And here it is next to a one, the original iPod. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the iPod sitting on top of the prototype. So uh, can you guys just maybe comment for, uh, for the audience, what, what uh, aspects of your theory does this example illustrate? I mean, to me, this seems like the uh, uh, augmented, unmodified box top right corner of the table. So mm. where essentially they've just tried to cloak it by putting it into mm. this big, ugly uh, case, which has um, yeah, zero user interface uh, design that they, they actually want to use. And, and, you know, like, yeah, so in terms of the cloaking thing, um, you know, it's, you know, it's a bit like uh, thinking about those design mules, right? One of the things that I think is interesting here, um, so two, two things. So one, I love this example. Uh, and 
it, it, it's this is interesting too because it shows a pattern of behavior from Apple because we've got an example in a follow-up paper where they've done the same thing but with the iPhone. So mm-hmm. what they did was, uh, you know, they put in order to cut down any leaks, they locked, they got all the, there's a number of different isolating mechanisms they used, but the design one was they took an, an eye, uh, the prototype of the iPhone and they labeled it an iPod. Yeah, mm-hmm. so that even if you got through all the security, you violate all the NDAs and you're walking around the lab and you see this thing, you go, oh, it's the next generation of the iPod. It's not an iPhone. Right. No um, big deal. It's so just, just another iPod. Just an another iPod. iPod. And then what I also like about this one. Not some new invention that's going to change the entire universe. It's just a little incremental innovation. But this is the other thing. Every time we present this paper, there's always someone like you, Rich, who's like, hey, I've seen, I've read in a newspaper article um, and I've seen like this neat example of where this happens. And so, you know, going around and presenting this paper is always super useful because people like you come up with these awesome examples. Um, so we've now probably got, for this follow-up paper we're working on, I think about 30 examples um, where people are doing wow. this. We're trying to more clearly unpack the link between imitation and value capture. But um, yeah, we're going to need to go read that article. Thanks so much. Oh, no problem. Yeah, I'll ha- be happy to send that to you. So um, this is the Academy of Management Review's origin series, right? So we do like to ask <laughs> questions about the, the origins of the project. Um, can you tell us a little bit about where, uh, where this project came from? Where did it originate? How did it happen? So uh, I was Dimitri and I was postdocs at Imperial College in London. Uh, I was walking up from the tube station at South Kensington one day and every day I walk past the Science Museum. And what they'd done, that is big poster up talking about uh, rebuilding Charles Babbage's difference engine. Mm. Um, so Babbage had this, the, build, the, the first ever blueprints for a mechanical computational device. I thought I'd never heard of that. This is a bit interesting. So I got up to my office and went and sat down and dove down, you know, one of those internet rabbit holes where you just start going, oh, what's this Wikipedia? And I got, came across this article on um, the BBC and it's talking about the whole construction process. And they said they ran into a problem um, when they were trying to, you know, build from the blueprints because they kept discovering these errors that given what they know now were totally illogical in terms of how computers should work. And they thought, well, this should have been obvious to Babbage because he'd solved similar problems in other places. They went back and talked to historians and the historian said, oh yeah, in this era, one of the things that uh, inventors like Babbage did was they inserted deliberate errors into their blueprints um, in order to protect them from espionage, from rivals. So I'm reading this in the computer and I turn around to Mitch and I said, oh, you're not going to believe this. I'm like, have you ever read anything about this before? I haven't. He goes, no. And we're like, wow, fascinating. So we were both very busy postdocs at that point in time and didn't really have a lot of time to follow up on of imitation in the theory of strategy, right? That would be very relevant. Absolutely. So we said, oh, there's something interesting here. But once again, we thought, oh, it's probably like just idiosyncratic and interesting. Um, so but then we, I mean, over the next couple of years, you know, we literally sat across from each other in a cubicle mm. and like every couple of weeks, one of us would be like, huh, look at this. I found some, some other interesting example that doesn't seem to fit, you know, what we normally mm talk about when we talk about protecting knowledge from uh, from imitation. And, and so, so slowly, like over that time, we started putting together a, a little document with a bunch of different examples. Um, and then, you know, we still had a whole bunch of other projects we were both working on, no real time to, to devote to it. Uh, up until, uh, when was it, Sam? Philadelphia? Yeah, Philly, the, the immigration line at Academy of Management, Philadelphia. Thank you, Philadelphia. So we got stuck in the immigration line for like three hours and, um, you know, we were bored as hell and uh, we just started spitballing and going back to our old ideas. 
and uh, watching as our uh, colleagues with American citizenship breezed by us. Uh, and uh, yeah, and we that's that was a big turning point. So we actually, by the time we got out of the immigration line, thanks immigration, um, we actually had sort of some bare bones and put some bones on it and started you know, building a theory. Uh, and so we started then working on that. And then we went for a drive around uh, after Academy Management Vancouver with our wives, uh, a drive around uh, yeah North America really. And so while they were in the back sleeping and we were driving, we'd uh, once again just keep spitballing and trying to build this theory. Uh, so they're probably the two big, it was at that point, it was sort of like, all right, yeah, we're going to do a paper. And we started working on the paper and in about 12 months, we had it ready to submit. So, okay. So a couple of things, first of all, having, having lived in Philadelphia myself for six years, I have nothing positive to say about the Philadelphia <laughs> airport. So you confirm, you confirm all of my, uh, all of my prejudices about the Philadelphia airport. But second, so it's, there's a, there's, there's quite a leap from having, okay, we've collected a file folder full of interesting examples yeah. to having a full-blown typology or taxonomy like you have yeah. in a paper yeah. with, with propositions for implications mm. for, yeah. uh, for, for, for strategy. Mm. So take, take me through the process of how do you get sure. from the point A of here's a, a folder full of random uh, examples that are, you know, just kind of, it's not clear how they relate to each other yeah, yeah. and whether they relate to each other mm. to I've got a full blown typology taxonomy that I can publish in AMR. Well, yeah, I, I think the, um, the, the majority of that really did come from those, those conversations, especially that, that road trip around North America. I remember us driving out of, I think it was Seattle at some yeah, time in the morning and talking traffic. about, you know, whether level of abstraction was one of the things which we could usefully implement in trying to, you know, categorize these cases in various mm. ways. Uh, and it was like, it was just through various conversations along those lines, trying to understand, okay, so what, mm. what, what are these cases of? What is, mm. what is it that, that companies are actually doing here? In what kind of ways are they similar? Are they different? Um, right. that through you know various discussions we I think our initial like draft I think mm. instead of the the two by three uh, table that we have now in the paper we had a, a three by three by two okay so figuring out what are all the relevant dimensions and perhaps you know maybe expanding that set of relevant dimensions or narrowing yeah. the set of relevant dimensions that's that's the that's the big challenge I think in yeah area. it is yeah and I think so in terms of the, 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 the theoretical tools we ended up using um, it's sort of unsurprising that when you, you know, so I'm a, I'm a more technology innovation management guy. Dimitri's probably a bit more of a strategy guy. And so when I started thinking about the topology and the knowledge, I was like, obviously Schumpeterian uh, and I'd spend a lot of time reading, say Lee Fleming's work, looking at recombinant innovation. And so it was, it was then quite natural for me to think about, all right, well, how could we try and categorize these as changes uh, from a recombinant innovation perspective. And I thought that was quite a useful way. Dimitri and I remember sitting in his office and mapping this out and thinking, okay, well, what's, what's changing? What isn't changing? And yeah, we got, we then presented that. Um, we, so we presented the paper a lot to get feedback. Um, so we presented it the first time. It was like a three by three. I think it was made three by two, Dimitri was saying. But yeah, it essentially exploded people's minds. They're all like, oh yeah, this is really cool, but surely like it should be a two by two. 
Well, I give it like <laughs> everybody wants a two by two in strategy. Yes. So yeah, I know, right? And so there's a uh, reminded me uh, Udo Zander, who was our uh, our editor. He he had this uh, old phrase. I remembered uh, someone telling me years ago that Udo said the uh, the goal of all management theory should be the one by one. Um, <laughs> so we couldn't quite get to the one by one. Uh, we resisted the two by two. So we, we did wind it back, but to what you see, um, because we thought this augmentation, like we could have left it, but we thought that was something that was really quite novel about our theory is the augmentation. Cause you could look at say Sid Winter's work in the eighties and, you know, you can already, uh, and the stuff like say Joachim Henkel and Carlos Baldwin stuff and selective revealing, uh, modularity. Um, and, and you already start with the number of these things. You can already see like those first two, the two by two on the left-hand corner, you can already got a fair bit of coverage, right? It's not presented in a coherent sort of way, but there's a lot of stuff out there, but it's the augmentation that thinks a little bit different and interesting. Uh, so we got that down and then we're like, all right, well, we got a nice typology, but then how do we make, how do we explain how these things impact innovate, uh, imitation? Right. This is what and I was going to ask about next. Where did you connect this up to the uh, ability, uh, aware, awareness, motivation, ability framework right because that that's a little bit of genius in this paper is taking this you know scattershot of examples and then connecting it up to that framework i thought so i mean my um uh, some of my other work is in competitive dynamics so i i was already quite uh familiar with the amc framework and i think mm -hmm. it was a, another case where, where sam and i were, were trying to think about okay so what, what kind of potential tools can we use to try and theorize this connection to, to immutability. And AMC was, I think, one of the, the candidates from the off. Uh, mm. And I think through the discussions uh, we had, we ended up thinking, okay, uh, it looks like a fair fair shot. Let's, let's give it a go. Uh, mm. Let's see where we get to if we do try and think about this through an uh, AMC lens. But I have to mm. say um, a lot of credit to the review process and to, mm -hmm. to the editor and the reviewers for actually, you know, pushing us to, to be much more clear and consistent mm. and comprehensive uh, in our um, use of that framework. Um, one of the, the main changes from the initial submission uh, to, to the paper that was accepted uh, was that the initial submission, we didn't have any propositions. Instead, mm. we had a kind of um, T-style decision flow chart. Uh, mm. And it was still drawing on AMC ideas, but doing so in a, in a far less comprehensive kind of way right um, and of course you know we got some pushback uh, one of the reviewers in particular was saying that it made it confusing whether this was a, a practice paper or a theory paper um, right. and so I think getting further into the AMC framework and drawing out those connections I think really helps to, to make the logic tighter yeah it's nice yeah. and systematic in that way yeah very very much so so um, yeah, that's very interesting. So, so let me let me just rewind a little bit. So, what was it that, that that made this project interesting enough for you to want to devote your time and effort and attention to it? We just it was we just couldn't we couldn't stop talking. We couldn't about stop it. ourselves. Yeah, we, we we just kept you know it's like so we have fun jamming. You know, it's like bandmates. You know, fun jamming uh, together. But then this idea, we kept coming back to it, and I think it's this sort of perfect intersection between both of our research interests um, and also just sort of general, the sense that we're both curious about this sort of stuff in general as well. Um, so yeah, it's, it's like any project like this, it's fun. And we thought it was important 
So, you know, there was different moments in it um, where actually I was always motivated to work on the paper. The, the, the thing where there's different things that spurred us along. So, uh, for example, the whole idea of isolating mechanisms was something I was preparing for a strategy class I was teaching at the time. And I was reading uh, Grant's, going through Grant's textbook and he's just talking, you know, he's got his own sort of take on, uh, you know, the resource-based view, right? And where competitive advantage comes from. And he's just talking about uh, imitation barriers in a footnote about isolating mechanisms and a link back to Rummel. And I was like, oh, that sounds sort of like what we're talking about. And I went back and read it and I was like, oh yeah, this is perfect. Um, and so there was these little moments like that where we kept finding stuff across both what we were doing in terms of teaching and what we were interested in terms of research and then what we were reading out in the world where it all just kept lining up and we're like, wow, I think this is, well, it's fun. We like working together, but it's important. Uh, and we keep getting the feedback, like, you know, from you, where we present the, these ideas or talk to people about them. And they'd be like, oh, wow, I've seen something like that. Uh, and then from a very early stage, like a lot of our colleagues would be like, oh, can I take that slide and present it in my class? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that that was that, that's why we got that. that so it's constant that sort of feedback motivates you. But it wasn't all positive. No, so, so the, the uh, actually the first couple of times we submitted a complete ish draft to conferences we just got rejected hmm. yeah so like i think AON, rejected. druid <laughs> who hasn't rejected it i think everyone has yeah everyone yeah but, <laughs> but then yeah, that, that kind of made us think about okay so how are we framing this who hmm. are we trying to, to speak to uh, and, hmm. and through the process you know rather slowly perhaps our, our framing became a lot more focused uh, a lot a lot clearer uh, compared to some of the uh, initial drafts. Well, you know, as they say, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And that's true for papers as well as for people. Uh, and uh, so it's, it's good to see that you guys drew strength and, uh, uh, and, and learning from those, uh, from those uh, uh, setbacks uh, rather than letting it stop you. Uh, so it sounds like uh, this paper emerged. You know, I, I love the, the recombinationness of many of the stories that I hear on, on this uh, on the series, and this is a particularly good one because you've got uh, this odd combination of a of a, a museum exhibit, a, yeah. a footnote in a textbook, and yeah. uh, uh, an airport delay, uh, yeah. which uh, you know somehow come together to create a little bit of magic here. That's great. Um, so, uh, can you tell us a little bit? You mentioned uh, one thing about the uh, the AMC uh, framework being made more systematic in mm. your use of the AMC framework being being made more systematic as a result of going through the review process. Uh, were there any other um, uh, important changes that uh, that happened through the review process? Sam, you want to take this one? Yeah, sure. So, so I think Dimitri mentioned we got rid of the flow chart and replaced it with propositions, and I think that was really important. Um, I, I went back and actually had a look at this um, and thought, well, how did the papers, my feeling was that we, it got longer. So original submission was 33 pages and the final one's 47. Mm -hmm. um, and what we really did in those changes, we focused it, we started off, it was originally sort of more broadly framed around, so let's say the knowledge-based view, uh, competitive advantage and stuff like this. And the feedback we we're getting when we got out and presenting it was that those people just didn't get it. Mm -hmm. um, the people that got it were really motivated by it were the people who were profiting from innovation types. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Their own value capture. And so I said, all right, well, and I remember it was a druid we were presenting our old colleague, uh, Eamon Salters, like, you know, you guys, like it's, 
PFI, you got to do it. So PFI, frame it like around PFI much more strongly. And we're like, we are talking about PFI. And he's like, no, all about PFI. And we're like, went away and went back and things like that really motivated us between the first and the final um, to really hone it in. And, you know, going back the other day and having a look through the original submission, comparing to the final one, you can see that. Uh, so we, we really, in terms of what the core idea didn't change in the paper. Right. But what it did was a level of sophistication in the theory um, right. and the clarity. So I think in retrospect, the decision flow chart is useful as a managerial tool, but it was black boxing too much of the AMC logic. So really bringing it out into propositions um, made it way more, tra- uh, theorizing way more transparent for mm-hmm. the audience and a lot easier to follow. And then really framing it around the PFI uh, discussion really helped people understand, well, who are we talking to? What are the fundamental assumptions um, that we're trying to relax? And you know, where do we sort of fit in? I think the other major change is to the discussion um, mm. because I, th- I think that's one of the, the main areas that, that grew uh, throughout the review process. Uh, and again, this was largely down to reviewers raising very valid points and suggestions around, well, okay, so let's say that this works, but what if the, the person in charge of this goes to a competitor? And uh-huh. Haven't they just taken everything with them? And so that made us think about organizational design and how it impacts both things from that perspective, as well as the ability to actually keep innovating, even if you use some of these tools, which might otherwise actually slow down your innovation process because you're potentially introducing confusion and prototypes that aren't really prototypes that others in the company should be using, right? Um, So I think that the discussion gained a lot more meat and a lot more hopefully useful ideas for for, for future work um, Mm. through the process as well. Right, because the things that we might do if we're focused on the, the threat of imitation uh, might be just exactly the opposite of the things that we might do if we're focused on, you know, I- efficiency or appropriation. Yep. Or, exactly. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. So absolutely. Yeah, like, you know, like uh, I think it's uh, Rifkin's work where he's talking about, you know, this wedge between replication and imitation. Right, and, exactly. Um, the... Uh, Obviously, with, with this stuff, there's um, take your take your uh, iPod example. So if you've got the engineers off designing the prototype in that way in order to misdirect rivals, you wouldn't want the marketing department to get hold of this and start planning their campaign, <laughs> prototype, right? So there, there, there's obviously um, yeah, there's obviously costs and risks associated with, and that that's what we sort of started trying to. Um, build out in more detail uh, in the paper and start thinking through, well, yeah, when when would it make sense um, to do this? And when wouldn't it? What are some of the costs? Right, because that iPod prototype is not going to fit in anybody's pocket. No, absolutely not, right? Maybe a backpack. <laughs> um, but yeah, that, that, the idea of the wedge is a, it, there and how this impacts it, I think is interesting. Like I know uh, Andrea Contigiani, he's got a nice working paper um, where he's looking at this trade-off between uh, experimentation and learning and here you think normally the assumption is, okay, well, if I reveal my, my prototypes for my software, then there's going to be an advantage because I get feedback on mm-hmm. it. Yeah. I go down the learning curve faster. However, it's also potentially going to reduce the window it takes for rivals to imitate me. True. Yes. Yeah, so a nice trade-off there. However, we're sort of saying, well, what if you use things like DRM or trial software to try and flatten that curve? So there's things that, as a manager you can do to suppress or bring that wedge, you know, or, extend the wedge out. Right, fascinating. 
So what what would now you've mentioned some of the challenges that you faced uh, in doing the project. Were there any other challenges that uh, you know might be helpful for uh, for you know junior researchers to know about and be aware of? You know, perhaps yep. people who have never um, um, never even thought about doing a theory paper, never thought about submitting something to AMR, maybe yep. never, or maybe even theorists who who have done, you know, work uh, published in AMR, but haven't done a typology type paper. Mm -hmm. uh, what are the, what are the, the challenges that you faced that maybe folks uh, coming along behind you could learn from? Uh, I'll start with some pedestrian ones, uh, which is when you, people don't understand, like if you're submitting to a conference, uh, one of the biggest challenges we had was making a reviewer understand that this was a theory paper. The amount of time we got questions like feedback back, like there's not enough data, your qualitative methods are wrong and stuff like that was amazing. Even when we present it sometimes. So we had to, we learned just had to be way more explicit about the fact that this is a theory paper. We thought we had been, but we hadn't been. Um, and so the lesson there is that not people don't have, usually people don't have lots of interaction with like building theory and theory papers. Most of the time you go to a conference, <clears throat> they're empirical papers. And so you need to put a bit more work into explain to people what you're doing and why. Right. Uh, Dimitri? Yeah, so that was actually going to be the thing that I had in mind as, as a challenge I, that came to. I got I another think, one. I think another thing that changed also through the review process, but even before that, um, and I think was probably contributing to, to this issue that, that Sam just mentioned, was that we used to have like a lot more examples in the, mm. in the introduction just to kind of catch the, the reader's attention, saying, explaining so, some of them straight off. But then mm. that sets readers on a wrong track, thinking that this is going to be more of a qualitative type paper or so it seemed. And I think the other thing that we used to have in the introduction was a lot more of sort of geopolitical kind of implications, um, which again, I think we, we've toned down a lot through the, uh, the review process because that, that's not really the focus of, of, of what we're trying to do. Yes, they're examples, they're, they're important ones, um, mm -hmm. but I think, do we even have, we probably just still have like a footnote. citation in the end, I think. Yeah, mm. but it used to be much more prominent. It did, yeah. And, and I suppose the, another aspect of it would be, if you think about the journey that we went on, we, so we really benefited from going out there and presenting it a lot. Mm -hmm. um, because with theory, it's not like you're going, oh, I'm trying to, I've got a data set, and I'm trying to analyze these variables and come up with, you know, an estimate um, that that's sort of much more anchored theory. You can have people can twist you in any which way. Right. Right. So, oh, no, surely this is an institutional theory story or surely this is like a that story. And it's like, ah. so going out there and getting that feedback from people and seeing how they're reacting to it. Like you may not agree with it, but you can always learn from that feedback. So, you know, the, the big one for us was, okay. STR people, strategy people, when we present this to like, you know, pure play strategy people originally, they just weren't getting it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, oh, it's cute, but they weren't getting it. Tim people really got it. And so that was like the important bit of feedback from going out there and presenting it. And then when we framed it, then strategy people got it. <laughs> but it was just that, that, you know, feedback iteration, listening to what they're saying. Um, and yeah, and also just, I suppose the other one for people, and this is one thing I've, I've learned, uh, I think, uh, you know, when we're at Imperial, Jerry George was there and Jerry's very big on this is sort of, you know, making sure when you got, when you got the core idea there, you know, if you think the core idea is there and it's a good idea, like submit it, mm -hmm. you know, like don't try to get it to 150%, right? Because, and I think that's something with, 
especially in your junior scholar sometimes like you want it you want your paper to be like buffed and nice and excellent but you can essentially get get it at 99% and then you spend like six months sweating the 1% that's going to change in the review process anyway. Um, and so that was a conversation we'd have was like, well, do we submit it now? Do we work another six months on it? And we're like, well, like the core idea is there. And like, we think it's a really good idea and let's go for it. Nice. Uh, so I, usually I ask um, this question uh, on this series about, you know, who's the target audience for the paper and who should read it. You've kind of uh, talked a little bit about this by mentioning the different receptions that you got from strategy versus technology innovation management, knowledge-based view versus profit yeah. innovation type researchers. Um, but you know uh, that those are those are issues perhaps having to do with different uh, iterations of the paper as it went along, developing towards what it is now. So given yeah. what it is now, it's the final product. Who, who are the target audiences for this paper, for the final product? And, and, you know, who should read it? And what should each of those audiences be looking to get from the paper? So I think the, the primary audience is indeed people in technology and innovation mm -hmm. management, those interested in, in profiting in, uh, from innovation. Um, I think that the core idea there is just these design uh, isolating mechanisms as a, as a new set of tools so that, that can be used to try and achieve that end. However, um, and also this relates to, to the follow-up project that we're doing now, I think also people in entrepreneurship um, mm. will have quite a lot to gain uh, from this. And especially, I think there's now also a community that's trying to combine ideas from design uh, with those from entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. uh, that we've started interacting with. Uh, and I think that there's useful um, potential there as well, because mm -hmm. it, in our viewing of that literature so far, it's been primarily focused on how design can be used to help create value. And mm -hmm. essentially what we're saying is, well, look, that's the case. Exactly, but it can also help to capture value. And there's interesting trade-offs uh, in that space. And then I think it still is very relevant for the broader strategy audience um, people who care about um, first mover advantages and competitive advantage, uh, Schumpeterian rents, uh, and, and the rest uh, of the things that, that we discuss. Yeah, like even, you know, talk about first mover advantages. One of the interesting journeys with a paper like this is that it gives you a new lens to see things. Uh, and so, you know, we'd, we'd read, um, you know, uh, Liebman and Montgomery before, right? But when you go, when we went back to it with this lens, we're like, oh, hey, they talk about writing up your patents in a certain ways to make reverse engineering difficult. There's just a, you know, a little line in there. And before we would have glossed over it, now you're like, oh, wow, they were thinking about this as well. Um, same with, you know, Sid Winter's got this nice little um, uh, line in uh, his 87 chapter where he talks about pouring epoxy resin on integrated circuits to make it difficult to reverse engineer them. Mm -hmm. um, then you've got the Gans and Stearns example as well. So I think, yeah, absolutely you can see then like first mover advantage is a good example. Of this is like, well, where does lead time come from? Mm -hmm. And what decisions are firms making uh, to try and enhance lead time? And I think there's where we see a lot more of this sort of stuff going on. Uh, one of the interesting things about publishing a paper like this as well is the unanticipated audience. So like Dimitri said, like we thought, oh, people will be interested in entrepreneurial strategy will be interested in this, but we hadn't thought so much about the design community. And yeah, we've given a few presentations to those guys now, and that's been great. But the most surprising one was uh, folks in international relations. Hmm. So there's a community of people in international relations that look at technology strategy, 
um, like Maura Gilly and his colleagues. Um, and they've, they've been looking at, uh, at a more national level about, you know, com- countries competing uh, and about how they imitate each other's military technologies. And so they've really sort of picked up on this as well. So that's been fun to have a conversation with those guys. Nice. So let me ask you to kind of uh, take this to the next logical step, some of the stuff that you've been talking about in terms of thinking through the potential impact of this paper. So I, I tend to think of any AMR paper as having five potential impacts, right? There's the potential, the impact on uh, uh, future theory, uh, future empirical research, future practice, future pedagogy, and future policy. So I don't know how many of those five would apply to your paper, but I'll just throw all five of them out there and ask you to comment. What, what, what impact do you uh, hope that this paper will have in, in any of those five areas? Uh, well, I'll kick it off with pedagogy because I think that was sort of uh, most surprising because uh, you'd think like an AMR paper, oh, well, theory, that's obvious. But the thing that the reaction we kept getting from colleagues was, oh, I want to use this in class. And I think, and th- that makes us super happy because we use it in class. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you're sitting there, especially through an art, like resource-based view and you're talking about imitation, like I think currently I think it's hard for students to see where they have agency in that. Right. And so I think our approach really helps them see how managerial choice and strategic decisions can actually impact uh, imitation. So uh, that's, that's one thing in terms of pedagogy where I think it'd be really useful is when people are teaching about imitation and then down the line substitution as well. I think these things are important. Um, they can actually ha- use our topology our framework and really draw an AMC to start thinking through, well, why might these choices impact imitation? So in terms of the uh, empirical uh, research and the potential impact on that, I think that there's a lot of potential for this typology to inform work that tries to understand better how firms um, protect their ideas from innovation. There's a long tradition of survey-based research around the use of patents and other kinds of protection uh, mechanisms. Uh, And what we're hoping that this provides is a nice way to to think about different um, tools that firms might be using to do this from a design perspective that can then also be incorporated in, in such surveys in the future. Um, and on the other side, I think there's also a lot of potential for other data sources to be used, um, archival ones, such as um, filings uh, in legal cases, uh, right? Because those tend to reveal a lot about what companies have done uh, around these sorts of areas. So we think that there's potentially a lot of empirical work that could also be uh, influenced. And then theoretically, you know, I think one of the things I like about where we got to with the paper was also this broader framing of the fam- like different families of isolating mechanisms. Um, so, you know, we talk about economic, we talk about legal, we talk about social, and we talk about design. Uh, and starting to understand how organizations use these different mechanisms, isolating mechanisms at different times to get different outcomes. Uh, that's something that I think at the moment, you know, there's, this, there's been some great stuff, especially in the open innovation community, uh, mm-hmm. looking at how social norms um, impact imitation. But I think it'd be really interesting then start saying, okay, how does that impact with design and impact with legal uh, mechanisms like, you know, trademarks or copyrights mm-hmm. uh, or trade secrets? Um, so it's, I think, and that's where the literature seems to be going, right? There's more and more work being done instead of just looking at, say, you know, uh, revealing the secrecy. Um, so I saying, okay, well, we do these things at different times for different reasons. So I was having a conversation with Siemens the other day around, uh, their CT scanners and stuff like that, their medical imaging devices. And they're just talking about this revolutionary new product they've put out in the market. 
And they essentially said, all right, well, what we did, we had a very small team for the whole project. We just focused on secrecy. Just before we're going to go to market, we drop all the patents to try and give a minimal amount of time for our rivals to look at that and imitate like GE, for example. And so I think I'd love to see more case studies. It's very hard to get access to this data, but get more, more case study based information around how are organizations actually choosing to combine these mechanisms and what are some of the outcomes? Okay. Uh, I think in, in terms of theory, the, the other impact we'd like to have is to, um, I mean, th th there's other work that, that's trying to do this now, but such as uh, by uh, Josh Gans and co-authors, um, to sort of explain a bit better how firms have um, some ability to endogenously change uh, the appropriability regime that they're in. So specifically how uh, the extent to which knowledge is imitable, right? Which in, in our usual theories uh, is kind of assumed away as being a constant that you can't really do uh, very much about. Whereas what we're trying to do say is, well, actually they do have uh, some influence over this through these design choices. Right, right. And that's, you know, I think, um, I think there is a lot of implications for practice here too. Mm. which you haven't mentioned, but I, I think, um, you know, th there's a whole menu of options that, you know, managers in some companies and in some industries may see part of the menu, but they're not seeing the full menu. And you yeah. have an opportunity here to present them with the full menu of possibilities uh, and uh, help them think through in what situations they would want to use, which of these, um, you know, wh which items from the menu. I mean, I could see where, you know, if you guys want to, uh, you know, give up your academic career, you could turn this into an entire, um, you know, uh, a consulting practice just <laughs> around this topic of how do you obscure or change, you know, your prototypes or your, your uh, manifestations, as you put them, mm -hmm. to better protect your, your ability to profit from innovation. I think that could be, you know, you could have an entire consulting practice just on mm -hmm. that one topic. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I certainly could see, you know, creating whole courses around that. So I think this is a, is potentially really great from the, from the perspective of, of impact on practice. Mm -hmm. And then I also thought, you know, intellectual property law is, you know, constantly evolving. It's, a, it's, it is, and has always been, and perhaps forever will be this contested terrain where there's always pressures to, to restrict and narrow the intellectual property rights and, and pressures mm -hmm. to expand them. And there's always kind of a pendulum swinging back and forth on that dimension. And so I wonder if maybe you could comment on how, uh, how this paper might uh, inform uh, the discussions and debates around intellectual property rights and, and intellectual property policies. So be, yes. before we, we get to that, I think just on the on the practice point, where though we haven't mentioned it so far in this interview, we are actually uh, in the process of trying to put together a, a practitioner-oriented uh, summary of, of, of the ideas. Um, so yeah, hopefully that don't give away too much though. You may no. want to exactly. selectively reveal, Dimitri. Selectively reveal. <laughs> yeah, you know, we want to apply some of the same techniques that you've been talking about. <laughs> This is, why, this is why we're in academia. Yeah. So that you can really theories. monetize more effectively through consulting fees, right? This is an innovation, right? Uh, you may want to profit from the innovation. Uh, he's and going for a niche creation strategy by selectively revealing. 
Um, but yeah, I think in terms of the policy question is a really good one, right? So I suppose, and it's, it's not something we'd thought about uh, as much until recently, but I suppose the, uh, the little bit that I've read about these discussions over the years is it's very much focused on the appropriability regime through the lens of only that legal mechanism. Right. Yeah. So if you're then looking at this one legal mechanism saying that this is what's going to determine the overall appropriability regime and therefore it needs to be tighter, then you're potentially missing out on what, what uh, uh, affordances companies have, especially with increasing amount of digitization connectivity with devices, what they can do on, say, the, de the design dimension or the economic dimension that might trump the legal dimension. So, you know, if you think about software is a great example. Um, so if you can all, all of a sudden, if you've gone shifted to say, and this is like years ago, shifted to object oriented programming, to what extent do you still need, uh, is, is the case weaker or stronger that you need software patents? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if really what we're interested in here is inventors being able to sustainably profit from their innovation, reinvest in innovation, afford to keep doing R and D, then maybe we're getting not the full picture in terms of what the na real nature of the appropriability regime uh, is. And I think right. that's a broader issue with especially our field sort of obsession um, with patents um, and the fact that there's lots of data, um, easy to measure, easy to run a regression on. Right. Um, and they're, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're tasty little things that are out there and you can easily scoop them up and start running regressions. But is it really, what are we missing out on yeah, right. by doing that? And I think that's hopefully where our paper appropriability regime, appropriation and the appropriability regime that are just kind of transparent, uh, uh, not seen in, in that perspective. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and also, like, I think there's also then some hmm, people then just take patents on face value. Um, hmm. Obviously, not the experts in the area, but just I'm talking here more from a general person in our community and teaching the classroom is. Uh, so, you know, Bronwyn Hall in one of her papers is talking about like essentially a strategy by which people would uh, obscure the enablement. So I know some of the guys at Technological University of Munich when we presented this said, oh, no, there's been this big shift between people trying to make their patents more and more difficult to read. Yeah, so there you're getting potentially into a world where you've got a legal patent, but you've got this design choices that you're making about how you manifest the knowledge into the patent that is having consequences for... Um, people imitating you. So I think there's like, even when you think you're looking at an illegal appropriability regime, right. um, is it really just that? Or is there something else going on? A bit like you've got an example in the paper, uh, talking about Tisa's work where he talks about software patents, I think. And it's like, well, um, you know, or, or let's say copyright with maps. Yeah. Well, we wouldn't be getting a accurate understanding of what the appropriability regime is like based on the law alone, unless we could actually see what, how has the, uh, the nature of the technology changed our ability to put things like trap streets and lockdown maps? You know, so yeah, I mean, I think, some, yeah, some of the, the work that I've done in big multinational ICT yeah. companies on, into the invention process and their decisions around patenting, I, I think also speaks quite a lot to some of the ideas that Sam was just talking about, because they, they spend a lot of time and effort thinking about well, here's this invention, but how do exactly do we put that into a patent if we want to patent it that is mm -hmm. as broad as we can possibly make it and still kind of get it through and still be something that is um, enforceable, uh, mm -hmm. that allows them to identify if infringement has happened. Uh, and I think that there's a lot of potential there for, um, for, like Sam was saying, 
recognizing that there's a design aspect to this. Mm. Well, I have found this to be an absolutely fascinating conversation, I have to say. Uh, this has been a really, really terrific conversation. I feel like I've learned so much from this paper and from our discussion about it. I, I have to say it's an absolutely outstanding paper. I recommend it very highly to anybody who's doing research in strategy, innovation, entrepreneurship, or any of those related areas. Uh, it's a really exceptional paper and I think uh, should be read widely. Uh, it is currently uh, available for download on the AMR website in the in-press section. And again, the title is Design as an Isolating Mechanism for, ca for Capturing Value from Innovation from Cloaks and Traps to Sabotage by Dmitry Sharapov and Sam McCauley. And I thank you, gentlemen, for spending the time today to discuss it. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having us on, Excellent.